The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at whether university is still worth it. We'll be hearing from one of the most important men in climate science, and we'll be discussing whether our obsession with dogs has gone too far. First up... The cover of The Spectator this week looks at whether, after years of COVID-based disruption, rising costs and lecturer strikes, university students still get what they pay for. The Spectator's data editor, Michael Simmons, writes a sidebar in which he rails against some of the changes that are happening to University Freshers' Week. He joins us now, along with Emma de Sarum, Guild President at the Exeter University Student Guild. Michael, could you start by taking us through your Freshers' Week, or at least what you can remember from it, and the ways in which Freshers' Weeks are changing in universities across the country, and why you think they're changing for the worse? So um, this all came about because we were having a kind of discussion in the office last week um, about the, there's a few universities that are you know changing their language around Freshers' Week to be more inclusive. They want to call it Welcome Week. Some unis specifically have said that they want to kind of have it less about the sort of drinking culture. And we started talking about our own Freshers' Weeks. And I realized that I didn't really remember much of mine, even though it was only 10 years ago. And uh, I thought, oh, that's probably worrying. Maybe it's like slightly to do with the alcohol. <laughs> uh, so I, I spent the weekend interviewing um, some of my friends from that time um, about what we got up to. And it all came back. And it, it kind of made me think that... Um, Although uh, I might have, you know, damaged my memory slightly, I think that the whole experience of Freshers' Week, which for me anyway, did include a fair bit of drinking, was like really useful as, you know, a start to uni because let's face it, you're a bunch of 18-year-olds, you're all moving home, you're du- you're dumped together with people that you've, different people that you wouldn't normally mix with. And a little bit of alcohol probably helps with that. So I'm slightly dismayed that um, some university unions seem to be kind of moving away to that for a more subdued and I think I'd later say kind of therapized uh, week instead. Yeah, so so on the, that final point about sort of therapizing, what are some of the reasons that the unions are giving at various universities for trying to move away from drinking and freshers week? So uh, there's, it seems to be um, kind of from kind of two reasons. The first is just this idea that um, obviously, look, not everybody wants to get into some kind of drinking culture. Not everybody, of course, drinks. So it's about being more inclusive, as they would say it, see it, um, and making it less drink centered. Although I would point out that for years, you know, these Freshers' Weeks were never all about drinking. There's always been mixed events. There's also a very specific thing with um, increasingly now uh, universities get more and more of their funding, I think, as Ross mentioned in the cover piece, from international students. And of course, if you're from a culture where the sort of British binge drinking type thing just doesn't go on, then the unis are more conscious of accommodating that now. Emma, can you tell us your thoughts on universities rebranding from Freshers' Week to Welcome Week? And I suppose also, could you perhaps address Michael's point that 
alcohol is sort of fundamental to Freshers' Week. I mean, and do, do you see it that way or, or not? Yeah, no, of course. Thank you for having me on. Um, I mean, so I've worked at my student union. I'm going into my second year now as the president of Exeter Students Guild. And I think, you know, your point about the fact that Freshers' Week hasn't always been just about alcohol and like there have been sober, I guess, events and there have always been like a variety of events. But I think what universities and student unions are doing, um, including at Exeter, is kind of just aligning like the language and like the advertising of that first week at university with what actually is on offer. Um, and what we're not saying is, you know, don't go out and have a good time. What we're doing is just kind of like innovating and updating the messaging around it to be more like just appropriate to what students are actually wanting to do. And, you know, you said about all these 18 year olds coming in, but actually the state of like higher education and like what university actually is now is incredibly different to what it has been. Um, you know, we're seeing like more and more students actually commuting to university, people doing like part-time courses. So actually what we're doing is just adjusting that first week to be more appropriate for a much broader variety of what a student is like there's not really like a typical student now like it is evolving so much and that point about international students is really um crucial like especially at exeter where we're seeing more and more international students coming um for various reasons we've got to make it appropriate for them because you know if you're coming to a new city a new country uh, potentially a new like culture what you don't want is to feel like isolated and we've had feedback and we've done got our insights and our surveys and stuff but you know if you're coming to like a brand new country you don't just want to spend your whole week feeling like you need to go out to drink to make friends um and that's why you know we're broadening out the offer but what we're not saying is you know that this is what you have to do now um it's just kind of aligning the marketing with what's on offer and what sorts of events will extra be putting on for students arriving this year yeah, I mean, so we've got, well, you know, we've got over 300 societies putting on their own events autonomously. Um, I mean, I've been part of several different societies and been on committees and, you know, you still have complete agency to organise your own events in line with whatever you want, really. But then, like, the Students' Union does a load of different events, you know. We live in a beautiful part of the world in the southwest, so we will, like, subsidise trips to local areas, like, going to the Eden Project or going to like a beach or something and really focused on kind of like getting people together and like getting to know the local area but yeah like as I say we've got like over 300 societies doing everything from like basketball ultimate frisbee rugby whatever and those societies will still be doing like events as they always would but it's just from the student union and university perspective we are representing thousands of students um, and you know under the 1994 education act like our role is to be promoting the interests of students our students and that's you know that covers so many different but um, on, on that point um about promoting the interests of students do you think that and um, i mean maybe not at extra specifically but there seems to me anyway at some universities like an overcorrection where you know surveys show that still the vast majority of students effectively consider drinking to be part of the student experience and there's some like something like 80 percent see it as crucial to a good night out now you can say that's bad or good but like fundamentally it's british and if the majority of students want that is there a danger that these unions are like overcorrecting and now they're saying right those of you 
those kind of mainstream ones go and sort yourselves out we're now just about the the therapy dogs and the ikea trips yeah and no, i think it's interesting and yeah i saw that um the study by sos about students and alcohol and drugs and that report you know 81 percent of students saying that getting drunk is part of university culture but also that study said that it was like 78 percent say that they don't have to get drunk to have a good night out so i think there's like a balance that has to be drawn and yeah like as i said we're not saying like you can't go and do that but obviously like binge drinking and it, it's like not good for students right and like there is a huge culture around it and i guess what we're doing is we're not saying like yeah don't go out but just kind of not promoting it as like the main thing of of that welcome week of that first week at university we're not saying like don't go and do like pub crews or stuff like that but we're just like this is just what we're doing um because we're representing like a lot of students and yeah it, it, i think it's like a positive change i think what we're we're not like closing doors we're just opening new ones and like allowing every kind of student to get involved and not feel like anxious that they're not going to make friends because they're not going on the pub crew every night of freshers week well welcome week i mean i'm still adjusting to the language right like, <laughs> yeah. i came to university <laughs> when I was 18 and it was Freshers Week. Um, and now it's Welcome Week and it's a change, but I think it's a good one. I think there's harmful stereotypes, right? Around like going to university and like having to go out and stuff. And for some people they want to do that and it's what they want to do. But I think it's like freedom. It's like freedom to choose what you want to do and not feeling like you have to just go out and- But do you, do you really welcome think, do you really think changing, it. like just changing the word from Freshers to Welcome will make people like, if there's like a drink pressure from I don't know, because that's what people expect at uni. Does that just go away because you've rebranded it? No, not at all. Like, it's all part of, like, a cultural shift. And we're just kind of, like, at the forefront of that. And, I mean, language is important. And I think a lot of people will appreciate it, appreciate kind of seeing, like, the university and the student union kind of like actively being, like, actually, you know what? That kind of old model, that old way of doing things isn't actually as appropriate anymore. So we're just kind of being one step ahead and, you know, our generation, like kids, especially like younger people coming to university and taking part in these activities, there are, we have got different challenges, especially post-COVID. So many more young people are like struggling with mental health stuff and they may not feel like they want to go out and drink and do all that kind of stuff. So we're just kind of like opening the opportunities for everyone to have a good time. And uh, Michael, I want to move more generally onto some of the themes that Ross Clark explores in his cover piece this week, because he's, uh, he's essentially asking the broad question, is university still worth it? And your your sidebar kind of plays into perhaps a more cultural side of, of that question. But um, what do you think of Ross's Ross's main argument? Do you think that perhaps in the 10 years since you uh, were at your, your freshest week, the idea of university generally has become less appealing? Yeah, I, I think this is such a difficult one because whether um, university is actually, you know, worth it or or not, it's, it's, it's kind of become essential because of the way, if you look at so many employers now, so many employers will just say, as a minimum, you need a 2-1 degree from some university. So p there's a lot less of this, oh, 
should I go to university? But when you actually look at the kind of the pandemic years, and I think we saw last weekend, some figures came out on the dropout rates, that when uh, grades were inflated over the pandemic and kind of more people were getting accepted than perhaps normally would under kind of normal exam conditions, some of those people have gone to have gone to these universities. It's, they've maybe it's not suited them and they've dropped out. And I think we have to ask ourselves for, for, you know, for these people, was it really worth it to get saddled with, say you drop out after one, two years, you've, st- you've still got a substantial amount of out of debt for an experience that's, you know, not worked for you. And uh, you, yeah, you're stuck with that debt. Maybe people more and more need to be looking at other routes. Maybe we need to be looking more apprenticeships. Can um, employers be getting rid of this kind of minimum to one requirement? But then on like the side of my sidebar, there is a huge social side to university that I would say is worth it, especially if you like a drink. <laughs> Emma, what about you? What was your experience? Because presumably you were at school and perhaps the start of university during COVID and the kind of after effects of the pandemic. And obviously we've also had all these strikes recently. And what do you still think that university is worth it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I went to uni and I had my first year was like a COVID year. Well, like halfway through was COVID, which was pretty, yeah, rubbish, really. Um, Being kind of like stuck in your accommodation and kind of having to like book to go to the pub and have all this like weird sit down nightclub experience I am so glad I did go to uni and like you know I can see they're dropping out and I think it was what I don't know like 30 percent of students dropping out but yeah like I'm so glad I went to uni I I did history and it was a great degree I learned a lot both kind of like inside the lecture theatres but also just like those general like life skills that you don't really get elsewhere but saying that society is changing like the world of work is changing and I think there's definitely a need for updating the whole just kind of education system to make it more fit for like working life and being adaptable and stuff like open university is only going to become more popular you know, especially with like the cost of living crisis and everything, like more students are choosing to work part time um, or having to work part time, really. So, yeah, I think it's going to have to change. And like the idea that university as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is going to be fit for purpose for the next 10 years. is kind of like things are going to have to change. Things are going to have to update as society changes, as, you know, we come into the climate crisis, cost of living crisis and everything the education system kind of needs to adapt to that. So, yeah. Thank you, Michael and Emma. Next up, in the magazine this week, we run an interview by The Spectator's special projects editor, Ben Lazarus, with Professor Jim Skay, the new head of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, arguably the most important job in climate science. Ben and Jim kindly allowed us to share a section of their discussion, and we pick up the conversation as Ben asks, what will happen if we eclipse the 1.5 degree target? Okay, can you say on the question of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees in the kind of the words of the Paris Agreement, there has been a kind of convention that what that means now is that warming is less than 1.5 degrees in the year 2100, but it may involve temporarily going over 1.5 degrees for a period of time during the 21st century. But the definition of 1.5 de facto is that that so-called overshoot would not be more than about a tenth of a degree during the 21st century. So that's what we mean. It could involve that slight overshoot of a fraction of a degree during the 21st century. 
Now, what our physical science colleagues told us in the last IPCC Working Group report was that it was more likely than not, to use the formal uh, certainty level, that warming would reach 1.5 degrees in the early 2030s, regardless of the ambition that was undertaken to reduce emissions. So in a, under a very ambitious scenario, and that is not as ambitious as reaching net zero instantly, you, it's, a, it's a rundown of emissions, you would see warming reaching 1.5, grazing over the top of it, but coming back down again in these most ambitious scenarios. So it depends really what you mean. Are you talking about reaching? Or are you talking about exceeding? You know, the, the choice of the verb is actually quite important in kind of understanding what the scientists are trying to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is, is when we might realistically expect that tension or those issues in terms of a growing rice or whether it's Bangladesh being flooded and causing migration crisis, et cetera. Well, I mean, it, co- it, comes, on, it, com- it comes on gradually as the temperatures rise. So, you're, uh, I mean, I don't think we have ever put into the report a year by which, you know, certain outcomes were happen because it, right. they're very uncertain. And the effects, say, on global food markets would be gradual. Perhaps, you know, we've, you know, the changes we've seen with the war in Ukraine impact on global food markets. I mean, that's an abrupt change that really moved things quickly. I don't think you, you, you're not looking at that kind of speed, but cumulatively, you're, you're, you could be looking at even bigger effects. One of the things I was, I was curious to ask you, the, the, the sort of term eco-anxiety has sort of come to the fore a little bit in the last year or two. And there's been a few reports, I think there was one by Jake Morgan, but a, a few others about young people today not wanting to have children because of eco-fears. Do you find that understandable? Or does that sadden you? Uh, do, yeah, yeah. just say I'm about to become a grandfather in January. So, we've got, so, so, clear, so, so, so clearly, I, I think it is sad you, you know, that, that people might be making these decisions. Obviously, and personally, I'm delighted you, you know, that, that I will have the offspring, the ski line will continue. And I think it depends a lot on on which part of the world uh, you the, the world you're in. The capacity to adapt to climate change varies lot across the world. And in places like the UK, people with high levels of development, we do have adaptive capacity, which may be much weaker than it is in least developed countries, countries on lower incomes. And quite frankly, I mean, when people are insecure, often having children is the is the insurance mechanism. So I I can understand the anxiety given a lot of the messaging. It's nothing to do with IPCC. No. But personally, you know, I think a lot of the pleasures and the you know, the productive side of life is is you know would not change because of it. You've still got family. You've still got friends. These are the things you know, that provide support for people, and these would still be there. Do you think so? Somewhere along the line. The, the messaging's gone wrong in terms of this sort of, you know, like there was, a, there was that Leonardo DiCaprio film uh, last Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up. And yeah. I saw that as a, a sort of a, a parable for this, uh, for global warming. There's a sense almost like the world will suddenly end, there is going to be an apocalypse. Do you feel that that kind of messaging has had a, a harmful impact on actual tackling global warming? Right. So just to say, in the last cycle of IPCC, I was co-chairing Working Group 3, the mitigation working group, the one that, one that looks at reducing emissions. And I think we were very conscious of the fact that constant drip, drip anxiety messages could have a paralyzing effect on climate action because people just give up and say, well, it's all the world's going to hell anyway, so why bother about it? 
And I, I think one of the messages that we were keen to get across that actually the human race has agency over its future. There are things we can do. We know there are options. We know there are technologies. We know there's enough money in the world to start to address these problems. Mm. So we wanted to pick up much more of the solutions message there, which is not the same as saying uh, we should be complacent about the risks, mm. but we should be positive about the actions that we can take in the light of these risks. And in terms of this sort of the campaigners who are obviously trying to bring to the fore, and I appreciate this is not the IPCC. At the moment, there's been a lot of just up oil protests, Greenpeace scanning Rishi Sunak's house recently. Do you see that as counterproductive or productive to the narrative that the IPCC would like? Well, it's like that thing, did the French Revolution work? You, you know, it's too early to tell. I frankly do not know whether that's been productive at the, at the moment. It clearly, on the one hand, keeps climate change in the public eye, using people glued to the road or or, or, or whatever. On the other hand, it is quite evidently, you can see it from our TV screens, that people, more ordinary people, are actually quite upset about disruption to their lives. Where that goes, I I frankly don't know. Now, we have social scientists in IPCC uh, as well, reviewing the literature that way, and I can imagine five or six years' time, some earnest PhD student somewhere has written up a thesis on just stop oil or whatever, the IPCC will be very, very willing to assess as you know, as part of looking at the kind of the social change that goes mm. along with climate change. And one of the things that you um, spoke about the other day in the, in, the, in the German interview was was that you, how you kind of need to have people on side for these actions. Recently, we saw with ULES, which has become a, a big issue. And I know there's a sort of a, a ULES by a slightly different name in, in Scotland as well. Is there a way of keeping people on side with climate change stuff, or is it always going to be that people are going to feel something in their pockets? Uh, just to say, my my other experience in this is while doing the, the IPCC job, I've been chairing a Just Transition Commission in Scotland. So the Dundee Ultra Low Emission Zone is something I I, I know about all too well, since I also come from Dundee. So so I hear, hear the stories on it. I mean, I think the key issue around that is it's really important to people that keep people engaged with the process and not pass it down top down and we have constantly on you know again this is not my ipcc heart this is my just transition commission heart we've constantly emphasized the need for clear planning that allows people to see where their actions are the things that are done that affect them fit into the overall picture and the ambition it's also really important, I think, to make sure that people are engaged with the process, not just at high level, uh, local authority level, community level, are engaged with the kind of measures that, that need, to, need to be taken. And I think the, the other thing to, to flag is we really need to be conscious about the economic effects that any measures have on different groups within society. Because we know that people on lower incomes tend to run older cars that are going to be hit by low emission zones. For example, electric cars cost money that people on lower incomes can't necessarily find the capital to pay for. So all of these issues, I think, need to to be taken into consideration when when you're actually developing policy and explained and consulted all, all the way along. That was Ben, Lazarus and Professor Jim Skay. And finally, do dogs like or even want ice cream? That's the question that Mary Wakefield wrestles with in her column this week in The Spectator. 
with supermarkets now stocking everything from dog ice cream to dog caviar, Mary argues that we've lost our collective minds. And we're now joined by Sir Carrie Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology at the University of Manchester, to discuss what our obsession with dogs and dog ice cream means. Carrie, what what do you make of the British obsession with our animals and, and in particular this new obsession with buying things such as dog ice cream? I must admit, you know, I come from California and the obsession I see with dogs in England when I've lived here now for 50 years is astounding. I'm just surprised by it because we don't get that same thing in California. I think during the pandemic, there was an increase in dog ownership. People felt more lonely and the rest of it. It really is almost an obsession now. I mean, you see, I mean, in my own village, I have an ice cream parlor there run by the church as a charity, but they have doggy ice cream, you know, so you come in, you have your ice cream, the dogs outside having their ice cream. I think it's about having a pet anyway is about whether it's a dog or a cat or whatever. It's about unconditional love. You know, this is an animal that gives you unconditional love. And for certain people, young people, children, and older people, I think, need that. The older people need it for companionship. They're more lonely, particularly the older they get, they lose their social network of friends, colleagues are out of work now where they got their social needs met, and dogs provide that for them. But why the absolute obsession with doggy ice cream, doggy grooming places, doggy therapy, I know in California, they even have CBD oil for dogs to calm them down and relax them if they're too stressed out. But that's a unique thing. That's just an L.A. thing. Do you think that's us projecting our own anxieties onto the dogs? Or do you think the dogs are genuinely stressed and need CBD, CBD rather? Yeah, I think that's about us. Nothing to do with the dog. And there may be some dogs that are hyperactive and may need calming down. Absolutely, you can understand that. But I don't think it's about that. And I think what we do with dogs is we need them in a sense more than they need us, if you know what I mean. And I think it is this feeling of unconditional love. And I suspect if historically I was to look at it, I would have thought this may have come from a while ago, and this this is a psychologist take on it, may have come from British people, English people in particular, had difficulty for a long time, many decades of expressing their feelings. And we have this whole new mental health movement, you know, where English people now can talk about their feelings a lot more. But when they couldn't, maybe they felt the comfort of, in a sense, talking to their animals about their problems, getting the support, getting the love from them that maybe they felt difficult to get by being more constrained in their feelings. So I think that's where it may have happened decades ago, where that need for animals, the obsession of animals and having a dog, having a cat came from originally. I don't think that really is necessarily the driver now. You know what I think the driver is now? I think the driver now is the insecurity that we've been experiencing for the last decade, 
Well, let's go back to Brexit. I think Brexit started the instability, political instability. Now we have financial instability with a financial crisis, cost of living crisis, everything else. We had the pandemic. All of those uncertainties, I think, drives people even further to wanting companionship and wanting unconditional love. Now it makes sense to me why it would be even more obsessive than it was in the past. But Kerry, may I suggest that there's always been uncertainty in history, but perhaps something that's changed, I'd love to get your opinion on this, perhaps something that's changed now as opposed to centuries ago is that people aren't having children, at least not in the same numbers that they once were. So could it be that our attachment to our pets and our sort of anthropomorphization of our pets is because we're sort of, um, they've become a bit of an emotional replacement for children. I think they've always been an emotional replacement, partly for children, and particularly as you got older, as the kids left the house, went to university, disappeared. And that's always been a replacement for it. No, I think there's more uncertainty in British society than I've ever experienced. And I've lived here 50 years. I think that there's political serious political instability there's the them and us scenario highlighted by brexit itself there's economic insecurity now partly to do with brexit but partly to do with all sorts of other unstable aspects of the global phenomenon from the ukraine and so on and i think this will drive people more to looking for that kind of replacement and also for children who want pets we're finding kids suffer more from ADHD than ever before. We have more incidents of kids being on the spectrum. And all of those movements we're seeing with children, the instability that children are themselves experiencing, maybe they're getting that from their home, from their parents' feelings of less stability. And they're wanting something they were wanting the unconditional love and the emotional social support that animals give them, whether it's dogs or cats or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's interesting times, I think, from this perspective. But isn't what's changed, it's not so much the need for the kind of emotional support, because as you say, I th- you know, pets have always, but animals have always provided some kind of emotional support. But isn't it it's the nature of how that emotional support the, the nature in which it's expressed has changed? Because, I mean, things like these the dog ice cream and the therapy and all the things you mentioned at the beginning, that is now treating animals as if they're not animals. They're, they're no longer sort of pets as such. They're kind of companion animals. And there's sort of um, humanizing them to a degree, which certainly feels like it's, a bit, it's, it's sort of wackier than, than it used to be in the past, doesn't it? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think what has happened is we are humanizing animals more because we need from them this love We need more of this social support. So we're treating them as substitutes for other things, other people and social relationships we don't have. Think about the pandemic. We were socially isolated, right? We had little social contact except by Zoom. Okay, so what were we looking for? We're looking for the social contact, particularly when we're locked down and we're getting that. And then here's a companion. Now the companion, we've humanized the companion now has to get dog grooming. When we're buying treats for ourselves, ice cream, we buy them the ice cream. 
right? And so in a way we have humanized them. We need them to be more human because we're replacing them for the lack of the social contact in certain scenarios we've been in, particularly the pandemic. And maybe we're doing that more. Maybe more people feel less connected than they ever have before because there's a lot, even within families, you have massive disagreements over things like Brexit and other political issues that have come up. So, yeah, th th we are definitely humanizing them to the extent. And also, we want to make sure that they're okay. So we give them CBD oil to calm them down. <laughs> we go to shrinks for doggy therapy. It's fascinating how we have humanized it. Thank you, Kerry. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Nara Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.